It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. G'day, my name is Anthony Daniel and joining me as always is Matt Grantham. How are you, mate? Very good, Anthony. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. Who's our guest? Today we're going to be speaking to Professor Paul Dastor about the development of printable solar cells and his work at the University of Newcastle and he joins us in the studio today. Uh, hello, Paul. How are you today? I'm well, thank you, Matt. Hello, Matt and, and hello, Anthony. Lovely to be here with you. Thanks for, thanks, for coming, thanks in coming in today. We'd just like to start these interviews just getting a little bit of background about your career. So how did you end up at this point, Paul? Uh, well, I guess I was originally born in the UK and uh, went to university there, finished undergraduate and PhD, got a job working in industry for British Steel, um, lasted about 15 months before I got bored senseless and looked for a job and a uh, job came up at the University of Newcastle and that was 22 years ago. Wow. I, l- I love how we look at our personal histories like, oh yeah, do went to university, got a PhD. Like... That what was that in, Paul? <laughs> what was that uh, PhD in? Was uh, that? The PhD was in surface physics. Surface physics, okay. Yeah, but it would have been quite significant in your life at the time, but now it's just half a sentence. You're, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty incredible. You, you are the founder and director of the Centre of Organic Electronics at the University of Newcastle. Now, what are organic electronics? I was thinking it might be something out of the Matrix when I first <laughs> was reading that. Well, can you can you enlighten us anymore? Of course, yeah. It's... Um, Something that's that's worth talking about. So when we talk about organic here, we don't mean the same thing that it means in the supermarket. It doesn't mean pesticide-free. What it means is that we're dealing with electronic materials that are based on carbon. And in they fact, could have pesticides in them? Is no, 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 no pesticides. <laughs> but it's like carbon chemistry was organic chemistry. So yeah. that's why we talk about organic electronics. And I guess for the benefit of your readers, uh, listeners um, and readers, the, the point here is that we're dealing with plastic materials, right, polymers, um, now, most of us associate polymers with being electrical insulators. That's why we make, you know, um, plug sockets out of them. Otherwise, life would be very short, wouldn't it, when you press the switch? <laughs> right. But it turns out there is a, there's a group of, of polymers or plastic materials that actually act as semiconductors. And once I have a semiconductor, I can make an electronic device. It's just now my material, my electronic material, I can dissolve up as a liquid. It's not hard and inorganic like silicon. And Paul, I just want to set the sort of market context for for this discussion. Many people are going to be very familiar with the the traditional silicon uh, cells that are on people's roofs encased in those uh, large sort of glass frames. And the systems at the moment on on people's roofs, maybe a five kilowatt system might cost five to six thousand dollars. What in terms of your uh, technology, ultimately, when it reaches scale and full commercialization, what's the sort of cost that you might expect for that equivalent five kilowatt system you know when you finally get to sort of full commercialization? That's a good question. I guess coming back to the first part of your comment, you know the first thing um, for us to realize is that we're not dealing with a technology now that's thick and glass encased and so on. rather than being five, ten, fifteen millimeters thick, we're dealing with cells that we print on flexible plastic substrates that are only 0.1, 0.2 millimetres thick. So we now have a very flexible, 
low-cost system. Economic modelling that we've done shows that we will be able to produce these materials, these modules, at less than $10 a square metre. That's not quite answering your question yet. But what it's saying is that we can manufacture at really low um, cost. Now it, the question is, how will that then relate in terms of a, a large area system? We'll need much larger areas to generate that 5 kilowatts, but it's going to be at a much lower cost than our conventional systems. Paul, I went along to a presentation this morning where there was a number of printed cell technologies, dye cell, and we've had uh, Scott Watkins on the show before. But can you give us a little bit of an idea? You know, the printed cells, everyone's excited about them, but globally, how does uh, Australia sit you know, as a global participant in this printed cells area? You know, where are we sort of batting globally relative to some of the other nations around the world? Well, interestingly, there are very, very few groups with the capability of manufacturing printed solar cells at scale using reel-to-reel production equipment. Here in Australia, and when I say very few, I mean two, three, four, maybe. Here in Australia, we're able to do that. And so that sort of answers your question a little bit. It says that we're really sitting there at the forefront of this technology area. In terms of the, the specs of, of what your uh, technology uh, you know, is at at the moment in terms of efficiency and cell degradation, how does it compare you know, to some of these other cell technologies and where does it sit on the, the curve at the moment in terms of you know, uh, efficiency and cell degradation? Those are the key sort of um, KPIs, if you like, that you'd look at in a thin film technology. So where, where's your technology sit at the moment in that scale? So in a sense, that's right, Matt, but those are only two of the key KPIs. The third one is the cost. Mm. You see, efficiency and lifetime, they play a role in the cost of the energy, but they're not the only thing that determines that cost. So answering your question, we are producing solar cells at around about 2 to 3% efficiency, lasting about one to two years. And so you think, well, that must be terrible. But the point is that when you start looking at the economic models, if you're able to manufacture cheap enough, those figures, those low efficiencies and low lifetimes now map to energy costs of energy that are competitive. Right, so it's almost like, um, you know, like say disposable contact lenses or something where if you can get the cost down, people would prefer to use disposable ones than having, uh, say, glass ones that are, you know, are more durable but are a lot more expensive. Similar kind of idea? Yeah, and I think that it starts to now turn on its head some of these ideas we have in terms of how will solar roll out. Um, For example, the current paradigm is that you know, the, the solar cell is bought by someone, the, the homeowner puts it up and they own it. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that rather we're going to see a model where actually it's so cheap to manufacture, you will just simply lease the roof space from the homeowner effectively. Mm. And, right? yeah, and of, you sell them the power. You, you guys are one of the only group uh, people with products where you can say you're rolling something out and mean, <laughs> and mean it. And actually, that's right. <laughs> um, you also talked about uh, like the, the printed solar solution, unlike uh, traditional panels, continues to function in consistently low light and in, with cloud cover. So what is it specifically about the technology that allows it to, to benefit or to, to exploit that? Okay, with the caveat of, of being a professor of physics, so you, you know you ask one of these questions, you could end up with a long answer. <laughs> um, but briefly, it turns out that these materials actually maintain their voltage at lower light levels better than conventional PV does. And so rather than... 
For example, when the cloud comes over, a, a PV cell will tend to drop both voltage and current. Mm -hmm. These devices tend to, to lose less in their voltage. That's why they're better at low light levels. It's not magic. At low light levels, they produce less energy. It's just that the amount, the, the reduction, if you like, relative to a conventional cell is less. So what does that mean? That means that over a day, they'll produce more energy. And mm. so that's my point around the difference between efficiency and lifetime. What we're really interested in is how much does the energy cost? Yeah. So the the ability for that voltage to, to not drop, is, it, is that due to the fact that there's other parts of the light spectrum that are being taken advantage of that aren't visible perhaps? So what is actually taking place there? No, so, so what happens, it's to do with the way in which charges are generated in these devices. Um, a photon comes in and generates um, an electron and a hole, but they are now coupled, whereas in a PV cell they're actually free to, to split. There's a strong electric field in a silicon-based device and that splits that um, structure. And that structure we call an exciton. When we split that, we split that at interfaces in the device, and it turns out that, that splitting of those interfaces allows us to maintain the energy of the electron and hole much better. So that's why. And, and that, that follows a slightly different relationship with illumination than a conventional PV does. Interesting. Uh, Paul, also one of the uh, sort of more exciting um, uh, things that got people, um, you know, tongues wagging this morning at the presentation that, that we went along to was the idea that you may be able to layer this uh this process on top of traditional silicon, um, and so the idea that that, um, that you may be able to use a sort of dual cell and actually capture additional energy on top of the the traditional silicon panel. Can you explain how the technology is able to effectively make a jump, if you like, in terms of overall panel efficiency being combined with something like a silicon cell? So um, some researchers um, are looking at producing what are known as tandem devices, where you actually do now exploit part of the visible spectrum that's not being absorbed by the silicon PV cell. And so that, by putting your complementary cell on the top of the silicon PV, it absorbs light at the wavelength that isn't absorbed by the silicon, and then the rest of the light goes through and is absorbed um, by the silicon PV cell. So you get a, a bit of extra current, a bit of extra absorption. That a few way. steroids for the uh, <laughs> for the uh, in a manner for the, of speaking for the silicon. Right. Um, Paul, we'd just like to sort of move on to, to talk a little bit about the manufacturing process uh, that, that's going on here. So, in terms of the manufacturing process, can you describe in a bit of detail uh, a bit about that manufacturing process that you guys use in, in terms of the, the production of these printed cells, and also just a little bit about the actual uh, organic material that you're using there? What is the, the the secret source that you're printing on? Sure. So. Solar cells that we make are actually a multi-layered device. We have two, three, four layers in the structure that we print sequentially. So we will print a transparent electrode, a, a bottom contact, if you like. Then we print the active layer, which is the, the, the layer, if you like, that has the secret source in it. It's a, a polymer blend that allows us to capture electrons and, and those positive particles holes. And then we, we put another contact layer on the top. So our solar cell is a two-contact device. And so that's done on a standard printing machine. Uh, we print on um, plastic substrates. They're mainly made of PET. And the other interesting thing is that we don't actually need very much material to make a layer that's going to absorb a lot of the light. It turns out that these 
molecules are actually very, very good absorbers of light. In fact, they're pretty similar to dyes that we use to dye our shirts and, and clothes. Those materials also absorb light and give us colour. It's just that we can't do anything with the charges that are generated in that light absorption process. With these materials, we absorb light, but now I can control where those charges go. We print across 300 millimetre, about the width of an A4 page, but we can print hundreds of metres at a time. Uh, I thought it's interesting. I mean, it's important to note that we're still early in the process here because you're saying you go through a number of times to print. It reminds me of like when you wanted some colour on your printer. Like you, you print the black <laughs> first, and then you print the colour just to save on the ink. But I can imagine that you know down the line that the process would integrate at some stage in the future. Oh, Anthony, you're absolutely right. At the moment, what happens in in the in the laboratory is you take the roll off one end, put it back on the machine, and print the next right. layer. Yes. In fact, we've already designed. Do you have to wait for it to dry. Do you have to wait for the first one to dry. No, actually, it, it rewinds dry. If you like, we have ovens in the process that actually right. do that drying and treatment for us. But yes, you're right. We've already designed the next printing line where all of those processes will be integrated. Great. You're listening to the Beyond Zero show and we're speaking today to Professor Paul Dastor from the University of Newcastle about printed cells. Paul, I'm always interested, these innovations where you try and develop a a new technology from nothing, you you go through these little moments where you have these sort of aha moments where you you just, you know, have these big breakthroughs. Can you describe, you know, how long have you been working on this technology for and, and just talk us through some of those little moments that you've gone through, we've gone gee, that's, gonna, that's the thing that's going to change everything and, and, and how those moments have unfolded and how that's fitted into the story of this technology. Yeah, so, so Matt, I started working in this space in 1996. It was myself and a summer student at the university. Um, who, who, had... who was number one at the time, do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I'm a physicist. We, 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 we don't know what's you know, on the other side of the door labelled EXIT. I well, certainly don't get wa- out. Let's say Oasis. <laughs> Sorry, continue. Um, no problem. So, um, and we were entirely unsuccessful. We had to make our own equipment and you know, I thought, how hard could it be? Turns out it's really bloody hard. Those moments that you describe, those are, for example making the device that first gave you some current. You shone the light on it. You got something. Didn't matter how much it was. But is, is science really a bunch of, you know, a series of events that involve you leaping out of the bath? Not really. Yeah. Not really. The way science works is through steady sequential development of concepts and, and ideas and, you know, through collaboration with, with lots of other people and working in big teams. It's Often people have this view that science is, you know, someone in a small room somewhere with a pencil and just... Oh, lab, lab coat. <laughs> fantastic. You know, so, um, so yes, a series of those sorts of events. So it's all been sort of fairly incremental. There's been, there's nothing where we think, oh, we've mixed those two together and that's the thing that's going to solve the, the so global no, energy I think crisis. That, that's right. That's right. And, and so that's why it's, it's, you know, it's been a labour over the last 22 years. Sure, sure. And uh, and going forward, Paul, we've sort of we've talked about that technology and, and how it's how you're hoping to evolve in, in terms of commercialization. What are the sorts of things you know that you're going to need to solve if you had a magic wand and you needed to solve bits of this problem going forward? You mentioned previously things to do with encapsulation. What are the things you need to do going forward to really get this thing commercialised? What are the, the, the magic bits of, from an academic point of view that you need to solve to get the efficiency up and the degradation you know, issues resolved? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And, and to start the answer to that question, I might, I might backtrack a little bit. Um, when we started working on these devices, we were dealing with 
devices that were a few millimetres across, spun coat films on glass. Um, And so we made the decision back then that we were going to try and control all of the steps of the process. So on the route, we've kind of done many of the things that you're asking me about what would we do in the future. So, for example, we synthesise all our own materials. We have developed the printing techniques, the printing technologies. We have worked out how we can design the architecture of these cells. All of this has been this this steady progress. As we head forwards, there are a number of challenges, but given the number that we've solved already, I'm quite confident that we'll get there. You're right, Matt, one of those is, is encapsulation, how we make the devices last longer, and to do that at a really low cost. So, for example, we have um, work going on at the moment developing new barrier materials. More efficient materials, they would be great. But I think we already have materials that are efficient enough for us to start rolling it out on roof. And that's what we're doing. If we talk about inflection points with the development, though, I mean, we talk about aha moments. But is there a point where you go from basically being quite insular in your lab and thinking about what you assume will be important in the path to to commercialization to the point where it's developed enough where feedback loops develop and you've talked about the cost where you're saying well okay we're never going to get to 20 30 percent efficiency but it's not about that it's about getting the cost down so is there an inflection point where where the market or potential market is speaking back to you and driving where where you are putting your research and development time yeah, I think I think there is. And in fact, I think we're we're either getting very close to that or we've hit that point already. I mean, we were here last month in Melbourne presenting the technology to the largest printing exhibition in Australia. So that was pack print exhibition that was out in front of we had we built structures that we drove down from Newcastle with solar cells embedded in them out in front of that conference in front of 10,000 or so wow. uh, attendees. That starts to hit that sort of tipping point where people can start to see it's not just a technology that's kind of interesting, sounds very cool, you know, wouldn't it be good if we could? They can see it, they can touch it, they can feel it, they can see that this is coming. Yeah, it's not just something they share on Facebook. Um, that's right. So, I mean, so before we move on to a bit more of the implementation of the technology, you also think that this technology has the potential to revise the printing industry uh, that, that is, of course, facing long-term decline in, in printed media that, that people may consume. So do they need specialised printing machinery or how do you see them being able to make this leap from, from paper to, to this kind of material? So I think in terms of printing, we need to now think a little bit more broadly at the moment, if you think about what what a printed image is, all it does is simply um, take in light and give us a pattern or a colour uh, or a message. Now imagine, Anthony, that my printed device, my printed page, does something. It does something electronic. The point is, is that the inks now are an electronic material. I can make solar cells out of them, but I can also make other electronic devices. And in fact, that's what we've done at Newcastle. We've started to develop the ability to print transistors, capacitors, resistors from these inks. And indeed, we now have a major project where we've been able to integrate biological molecules like enzymes directly into a printed transistor to give us a sensor. Why might you want to do that? Well, One of the enzymes that we put in is glucose oxidase. That detects glucose, 
but because it's directly embedded in the transistor, it's right at the point where amplification is greatest. And so we now have a really sensitive sensor for glucose. A sensor so sensitive it can detect the glucose in your saliva. And that follows the glucose in your blood. So now if you're diabetic, you won't have to stab yourself four to ten times a day. You might just be able to lick a sensor. And we're now got a major project, a commercial project now, uh, with the focus of producing clinical prototypes within 18 months. That's incredible. Yes, it's going to be uh, potentially revolutionary, that one. Moving back to the energy stuff there, Paul, one of the things that if you look at you know, the other side of the equation here, look at the, the silicon, the, the main manufacturing processes, they require huge labs. Um, then you need to transport the silicon to you know, the, the large-scale solar project or, or ship them around so they get up on people's roofs. Um, this process that you've got in terms of the assets you need to, to produce, you know, for example, large-scale solar, is it feasible that you could just take this printing material, move it to Northern Australia or Western Australia or wherever you need it, set up your printing, you know, hit the print button effectively and just print out your your large-scale solar farm and then move it on and print it out somewhere else? How mobile is your um, printing facility? Matt is obsessed with getting stuff onto shipping containers. (laughs) Can can it be put on a shipping container and done remotely? That's That's all Matt seems to care about these days. Well, I I think he's hit the nail nail on the head and and I might also use my answer to this question to to also follow up your previous question, Anthony, that that the printers that we're using are not specialised. So we're using, for example, at Newcastle, we're using a printing machine that usually prints wine labels. Can those be containerized? Absolutely. Um, So we have partners at the moment who do a lot of work containerizing technology so it can be shipped to remote locations. So you're on the money there, Matt. You can certainly look at printing on demand. And indeed, one of the things that I think is exciting about the technology is I can't think of another energy generation technology where if we have a disaster tomorrow, we could potentially be printing solar cells to deploy to that disaster zone the next day. But so but you, that printing material comes, but is there what is the raw material that would be needed to produce at the speeds that you think you can produce? Would, would that be relatively mobile as well? Yeah, so we, we if we look at the cell manufacture, we print on rolls of PET, that's reasonably mobile. Yep. All of the other things are simply inks that we can manufacture and keep um, so tanks and, and, yeah. and just either put them in the container and print them or print and ship the printed product. Fantastic. And I'd imagine, uh, Paul, that this opens up a whole a load of potential markets uh, to do with the sorts of structures, for example, that may not uh, you know, houses very clearly can support silicon, but I'd imagine there's a lot of parts of in the developed world where you simply couldn't, your, the thing you live in, your house or your tent, may not actually be able to support the weight of a traditional solar cell, but may in fact be able to support the weight of your very light plastic. You're absolutely right. And in fact, we don't even necessarily have to look to the developing world for those sort of um, roof structures, even here in Australia. There are plenty of industrial uh, roofs, warehouses, etc. They aren't designed to take heavy weight loads on top of them. No. Those are now all open to to being um, having um, printed solar deployed on them. The other thing that's interesting, if we come back to the to the point we made before about working at low light levels, that also means that I don't really care which way the roof points, or whether I coat a wall, or mm. a roof, or a window, or an awning. Yep. All of these will generate power. But is there an issue with, you know, obviously the elements, the, the weather elements in those kinds of situations? How how, uh, how 
how much can it can it withstand? Well, the materials are basically encapsulated and and um, based on PET. That we make Coke bottles out of it. It's pretty durable. Um, I often get asked the question about what happens in a hailstorm. <laughs> I said there must be some incredible fear in the community <laughs> around hailstorms. I, well, it's the same as Coke bottles. I think it's going to be covering the ocean pretty soon, <laughs> well, these printed so, solar cells. So, well, that's a really good question. So does that mean that we solve one problem and create another one? I don't think so. And I, the reason I say that is that I come back to something I said before, which was that these materials are really good absorbers. And so the layer that we put in, in between, if you like, is only 100 nanometers thick. The substrate, the barrier and the PET, that's all around 75 microns. What I'm telling you is that everything else that's not the PET is less than about 0.1% of the total mass. So what am I going to do? I'm just going to pull it off, remelt it, and recycle it. Yep. Yeah, it does sound like the matrix. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just touching on some of the issues to do with implementation, I mean, we've had various people on the show before, Paul, talking about, you know, the fact that you'd be able to spray things on windows and you'd be able to get a sort of solar window in a can. I've always been interested just from a practical point of view of, of once you do, you know, for example, spray this on a window, how do you connect the electrodes to it and then connect it to a grid? How's that process work in a practical sense yeah, uh, without, you know, people touching the window and being electrocuted, for example? That's right. You would need to have um, the ability then to, to coat your electrodes first onto the substrate, then put your your coated layer, your active layer, the, 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 the magic solar paint, and then the, the and next electrode over the top of that. Indeed, we, we have developed solar paint materials that consist of um, emulsions of these materials suspended out of water. And so the prospect of being able to have solar paints that we literally paint on surfaces is something that we now are getting very close to being able to implement. So in other words, directly applying to a substrate like a, a metal or a, or a window. But it's not magic. You'd still have to be able to coat first your electrode, then your active layer, then the other electrode. Um, and lastly, we, tell us a bit about your collaboration with, with CHIP. Um, what, what sort of things are you working on there? So what we've done um, through 2017 is a series of large-scale rollouts of the printed solar technology. In January, we deployed the first 100 square metres in the country, first 100 square metres of printed solar up on roof at the University of Newcastle. And it's sitting there taking data and, and giving us fantastic information about how materials are performing, etc. The second rollout was um, PackPrint, where we exhibited the technology for the first time um, in the public to the public here in Australia. Our third rollout is the first commercial deployment of mm -hmm. printed solar. That's involving CHEP on one of their logistics hubs uh, close to us in, in Newcastle. So we'll be deploying 100 square metres by the end of the year on roof and, again, measuring its performance and demonstrating it as a deployed site for printed solar. Did you see them as being a specific good candidate which, where they perhaps wouldn't work for silicon um, in the past? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they've, they've had a focus on sustainability as part of their the structure of their company for years. They've been looking at trying to make these centres um, carbon neutral and silicon has just been too expensive for that right. solution and indeed again the roof may not necessarily take the load and would require a lot of reworking and, and so on so being able to deploy a low cost printed solar solution is exactly what they're looking for
Fantastic. Paul, we've unfortunately got to wrap the interview up now, but is there anywhere that listeners can sort of um, get in contact with you, uh, a sort of website or email address or something that, you know, uh, people, if they want to find out a bit more about this information, can can get hold of you? Yeah, sure. So I'm based at the University of Newcastle, and they can contact me via email, uh, paul.dastor at newcastle.edu.au. We'll put it in the show notes as well. So thank you very much, Paul. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Matt. And thank you for your interest. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero show brought to you by the climate solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions. If you want to listen to more of these shows, you can go to bze.org.au slash media slash radio. Thanks for listening. My name is Anthony. I'm Matt. We'll catch you next time. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.